This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Science writer Harriet Washington says America's healthcare system is operating on a dangerous set of mythologies that have deep historical roots. In the 19th century, scientists promulgated falsehoods that black people couldn't feel pain or die from certain illnesses. The myths were meant to justify enslavement. This history has led to a healthcare system that disadvantages people of color. So I think that we have to be careful and to dissect out the mythologies from the actual history, from the actual science, if we want to dismantle systemic racism. Today, how does structural racism reveal itself in medicine? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health. In the U.S., communities of color have less access to health care, poorer quality care, higher disease rates, and lower life expectancies than white people. These inequities didn't come out of nowhere. They reflect the successful implementation of social policies, and many were rooted in racism. Social factors like education, economic opportunities, and where you live are all determinants of health. In fact, your zip code is a better predictor of how long and well you'll live than your genetic code, says Harvard Public Health professor David R. Williams. Williams joins Harriet Washington and Marcella Nunez-Smith for a conversation about the long, disturbing history of structural racism in healthcare. Washington teaches bioethics at Columbia, and Nunez-Smith is a senior advisor to the White House COVID-19 response team. She's also the founding director of the Equity Research and Innovation Center at Yale. Trumaine Lee moderates the conversation. He's a correspondent for MSNBC. Here's Lee. I want to start with kind of a clarifying question that kind of just sets a baseline here. You know, we've all heard the term structural racism. It's even in the title of this talk. But what does that mean in the context of healthcare today, right? How does it reveal itself? Dr. Nunez-Smith, let's start with you. When we kind of get going into this thought, what is structural racism, particularly in medicine, I think a good frame, at least, you know, the way that I think about it is how we have normed particular policies, practices, and processes that will be guaranteed to advantage particular groups and in doing so, disadvantage particular groups. And it's about access to resources, typically. And so making sure in this process of reifying this normalcy that resources go to one group uh, in preference to another, and then the cycle repeats. And, and as we go through our panel conversation today, I'm sure we're gonna get into how we think, how that operationalizes and shows up in medicine. Harriet? I couldn't agree more. I could never have said it that well. In addition, I think of structural racism as a well-oiled machine, um, a perpetual motion machine, if you will. Basically, once the structure of racism has been installed, the mythologies, the beliefs, the practices, then you don't need to do anything more to um, continue on its onslaught on people of color. It basically runs itself. And that's what we have in this country. We have, beginning in the 19th century, beliefs by the country's premier scientists installed a bit of mythology masquerading as, as history, masquerading as science. And we have taken that to heart. We've integrated that with our present day science. So right now, although we're operating on what we believe is evidence-based medicine, we're actually operating on a set of mythologies about who Black people are, how they behave, and the things like um, this investment in the idea of biological dimorphism, that black bodies and white bodies are inherently different and that drives disease rates. Those kind of beliefs have been carefully inculcated and have become part of the medicine we practice sometimes without really thinking. So I think that we have to be careful and to dissect out the mythologies from the actual history, from the actual science, if we want to dismantle systemic racism. Dr. Williams, the, this well-oiled machine, the mythology surrounding it, how does it reveal itself in everyday kind of ways? Well, let me just make the point. I completely agree with my colleagues, and again, it's an honor for me to be here um, with them and with you. But let me make the point that a lot of times when we see you know, stark, striking inequities in, in access to care, in the quality of care, in health, in, in how long people live in disease rates, Sometimes observers say, we, we, we have a broken system. And because of structural racism, we do not have 
a broken system. We have a well-functioning system delivering exactly what it was intended to deliver. Um, these inequities that we see are not random events. They're not acts of God. They didn't come out of nowhere. They reflect the successful implementation of social policies, many of which have been historically rooted in racism. So, so yes, structural racism is real. And because it is so normal, uh, it takes some work for us to identify it and unpack it and see the ways in which it, it generates inequities in our society. You know, I want to pick up right there with that answer, Dr. Williams. This initial intentionality, right, based on the mythology, creates this machine. It's working exactly as it should. At this point, is it a matter of the the ball the ball just rolling down the hill, or are people today intentionally maintaining this this system? You see, the the system is in place, and the people who may be operating the system may be egalitarian in orientation, but the system has been in place and, and it functions. Let, let me give you just one example. It has implications for access to care, but it plays out in so many domains of life. I like to call it a, a mechanism of structural racism that's the secret source that drives racial inequality in America. And it's residential segregation by race. Uh, where you live in public health today, many researchers say your zip code is a better predictor of how long and how well you will live than your genetic code. And, and what they are describing is the reality that place and opportunities at a neighborhood level is a driver of inequities in this country. Let me give just a couple examples of some studies and what they have found. One study by William Julius Wilson and Robert Sampson, two eminent sociologists in the United States. They looked at 171 largest cities in America and said there's not even one city where whites live under equal conditions to blacks and at the worst urban context where African-Americans live. The worst urban context where whites live, sorry, is better than the average context of black communities. Another study, uh, uh, Harvard Economist, national data for the United States, he shows statistically if you could eliminate residential segregation by race, you would completely erase black-white differences in income, in education, and in unemployment, and reduce black-white differences in single motherhood by two-thirds. All of those stark differences are linked to opportunity at a neighborhood level. And the fact that we have neighborhoods that differ markedly in, in, in access to opportunity, quality of schools, quality of elementary schools, access to employment opportunities, and so on, these, this didn't just happen. This, these were policies that were implemented to produce that, and they continue to function even if there are people in those institutions that, that have very egalitarian beliefs. So that's just one example. And, and I just give the examples of how these inequities drive health. But these inequities also drive disinvestment on the part of our political leadership, and they drive access to high-quality medical care for people who live in those neighborhoods. Dr. Nunez Smith, uh, Dr. Williams laid it plain there. Uh, have we done enough to disentangle those things? If your zip code is determining so many outcomes, negative health outcomes in particular, and it's not that that information is hidden somewhere, it's been researched and reported on, have we done enough? And if not, why not? Yeah, I think if we're going to kind of uh, start grading ourselves, we probably won't fare so well, right? I think we're bringing a lot of attention to these conversations. I couldn't agree more, right? When we start having this conversation about about health and health outcomes, which is where we want to get to, and healthcare is a part of that, a very important part. But even as we talk about the variance in terms of what drives health and health outcomes, as has just been said, 60%, right, at least is coming from social economic factors. And we have to begin our conversations there or at least be inclusive. For many people, you know, we're talking about these social structural drivers or determinants of health. And housing is one of those examples. You know, you can, for every national crisis, including what we're in right now with COVID-19, overlay the communities that are most negatively affected, right on top of that redlining map that Dr. Williams was talking about. And the pattern is predictable every single time. And so, you know, I know as a country, we've had a collective witnessing this past year, it's driving us to a place 
of, of maybe some long overdue conversations in some settings where we haven't had them before. But for many of the people who have been studying, right, and this is not new, a new field or new science, those who have been working in health equity and health disparities knew exactly who would be affected, the disproportionate burden, because it's always the same and it follows that clear pattern. So when we think about uh, you know, moving forward, what we need to do, and we have to be bold, we have to be courageous, we have to recognize how important factors like housing are and how important pathways to economic, educational, other opportunities would be. So, you know, what I challenge us, and I'm a practicing internal medicine physician, so I challenge us in healthcare to recognize the fundamental role of all of these social structural drivers, to integrate that, bring it in, to recognize really and truly that healthcare is but a microcosm. So we are not shielded from the racism that exists writ large in our society. We have to do that critical inquiry work, self-interrogation, think about the role our healthcare system plays, um, but also understand the role of these social factors in reality and integrate that into our plans and our practices and our policies and everything else moving forward. Harriet, as, as the kids say, I, I want to keep this 100, right? How much of what we're seeing here is pure and simple anti-Blackness? Certainly there's racism writ large, uh, but anti-Blackness is a special kind of American racism. How much of that is at the root of all the issues that we're talking about, the overlay of the redlining, healthcare, food deserts, all that combined? It's not only pervasive, but it was a triggering factor. A lot of the injustices in health that we see today, as I mentioned before, have their roots in the 19th century. Scientists then, the best scientists in the country, promulgated a series of beliefs about African-Americans that had a very strong political incentive. They were meant to justify enslavement. And so when African-Americans were characterized as people who didn't feel pain, who didn't die from yellow fever, relatively you know, insensitive with a lot of illnesses that struck whites, that was an argument for using them in ways that you could not use whites, in malarious, quote unquote, environments, um, driving them when they're in great pain, because of course they didn't feel pain. And also um, the segregation was also intentional. Hospitals and medical schools in this country were historically located in pockets of people of color where black people lived because black bodies were used as medical training material, both in the clinic where they were used to demonstrate illness, demonstrate procedures like amputation, and they were used after death as anatomical specimens. I mean, we were horrified to read about the bodies at Penn, but I can give you a long list of universities that have the bones of African-Americans in the basements of their anatomy laboratories. This is actually normative. This is not an unusual finding. So today we have a situation where one year ago, I had a piece in Nature pointing out that every condition caused by environmental racism was a risk factor for coronavirus. These vulnerabilities are consistent. They underlie many diseases that strike us, which is why we see the same pattern over and over again. So in broad strokes, yes, they were set in motion by intention. Intention is not necessary to, to keep them in motion, but it certainly doesn't hurt that we do have a few, you know, we talk a lot about implicit bias, which exists, but there's also explicit bias. And I don't think we talk enough about that. Thank you so much, Harriet. Dr. Nunez Smith, Harriet uh, laid it out right there and she pulled in the, the, the pandemic which has really revealed so much about inequity and racism in healthcare. And we've seen how the virus has disproportionately affected communities of color, um, you know, black communities in particular. Now the White House has made some pretty big promises when it comes to COVID-19 response and equity. And this week marks 100 days since President Biden took office. And I just wanna ask you, where do we stand right now in terms of the numbers? Where are they trending? And have we made any real substantive progress in terms of, of protecting our most vulnerable populations? Absolutely. So COVID-19, as you just said, it did not create any of these disparities or inequities, right? It just laid it bare for us all to see that collective witness that I referenced earlier. It is absolutely at the center of the administration's President Biden from the beginning, you know, signing executive orders on his first full day of office that say we have to put equity at the center for the COVID-19 response, as well as the recovery, right? And moving forward, and what can we do? There's always a next time. Um, and what can we do to be better positioned uh, there? So, you know, let's talk for a minute about um, where we stand perhaps with, with vaccination, because I think that is one of these key questions. We're at this uh, moment in our country now, we're very hopeful, we have optimism, we have a uh, supply for every eligible person in the country by 
end of May. Everyone over 16 is now eligible. So we are in a privileged position in our country where we can take advantage of the best of scientific discovery. Yet we know that there are questions about who is getting vaccinated and how. And critically, I want to talk about, uh, you know, so often we hear uh, about a hesitancy, right, which I'm sure we'll get into. But, you know, when we talk about vaccine confidence and the level there, I always say we have to start with access, right? And it's access to actually the vaccination. If you're doing work in equity, you know that the way that you communicate, you rebuild trust, because everything we're talking about today has led to the very rational, right, skepticism and the part of many, many, including communities of color, to say, you know, institutions, the, the government, scientific institutions, medical institutions have not led with my best interest in the past, particularly when we come to things like new treatments, new therapies, new vaccines. And so we have to make sure that we're showing up and we're listening, right, first and foremost, and then we're making sure that people can get vaccinated who want to, but also that there is access to information. And so at the very, very beginning of the administration, within the first three weeks, President Biden set up specific channels with intentionality to get into communities and those channels are, are achieving those goals. Now, there is more work to do, absolutely. Uh, and, and it's all about partnership. At the end of the day, when we think about how we're gonna make sure all of us get to the other side of the pandemic, it is hyper, hyper local. This is something else that we often fail to see in medicine and healthcare, that we need to be working in partnership with communities. Communities are always expert in what they need to thrive and do well and succeed. And that is also a guiding principle of this administration. There are certainly barriers to access traditionally, um, especially in those hard to reach communities that are dealing with so much. But then you have the Johnson & Johnson news, these rare blood clots. And I wonder, as someone who is pushing as part of his task force to make sure that folks are armed with the proper information and we break down some of those walls, how does this kind of thing set you back? Because a lot of people point and say, that's exactly why I didn't want to take the vaccine in the first place. Yeah. So most certainly, you know, in these conversations around building confidence, I always say you're going to meet people where they are. Right. So we're always going to show up and listen and honor the questions that people have. It was really important. And I, I wanted to stress that what we saw with J&J &J, when the FDA and the CDC in an abundance of caution, right, did that pause. It's really important. We had six cases at that time. And what we should lift up, and I think one of the key messages to take away for folks is that the system of surveillance worked and we were able to identify those cases. And that is a powerful, to me, confidence booster, or can be, right, to know that the system is working really well. So I think we'll stay tuned. I mean, as others here know as well, I, I certainly know people personally who, you know, have a preference for J&J &J and prefer one shot on one dose. We're at a moment, again, with supply where we can have those conversations. We can think about, you know, kind of the flexibility providers want. Um, but once again, the system is working. And I think that's part of it when we talk about safety, that we make sure people understand the processes that are working and that they're free of political interference, really importantly. So we're continuing that work in partnership. The, the administration uh, announced we have the community core, 8,000 partners to date, those trusted voices and messages to deliver the right information and really to tackle misinformation and disinformation. So there's always, there's always, always work to do. But most certainly the commitment is there on behalf of the administration to be centered on making sure that people have access to good information and that when they are ready to get vaccinated, they can in an easy, convenient way. But before we move on, since I have you here, um, let's talk about goals moving forward. What, what, what are the goals moving forward? Obviously, um, you know, access has been you know, sped up. What are the goals moving forward in terms of access, delivery? What's next? Yeah, absolutely. So from the beginning, the, the commitment has been to ensuring that there is, you know, vaccine distribution evenly across all communities. And we're continuing with that. And then, of course, we want to make sure that the communities that have been hardest hit have the ability to get vaccinated. And so moving forward, I'm sure people have seen some of the data um, in the vaccine space specifically. We're looking so closely at where and how vaccine is available, uh, tracking on that, being able to deploy resources with intentionality where we see areas where vaccination might be lagging. Thinking about those structural barriers specifically, you know, the administration has focused now on making sure things like transportation can be addressed. 
thinking about structural barriers, we heard the president announce and really charge employers to make sure people have paid time off to be able to get vaccinated and to recover from any side effects that they might experience and to provide a tax credit for those small and medium sized businesses so they could give that. So always making sure that we're thinking about those structural barriers and addressing them uh, along the way. And the investment, of course, you know, back to our conversation today in terms of healthcare specifically, um, recognizing the role of, of places like community health centers. Those are incredible assets in our neighborhood. Um, all across the country, we have a federal partnership with them for direct vaccine allocation. Over 70% of people vaccinated at community health centers are black and brown. Um, so that's incredibly important. And the administration has put lots of resources into uh, making sure community health centers will be strong and resilient healthcare institutions today and moving forward in the future. So, but we also have to think about those other COVID-19 resources. So making sure that we're thinking about access to therapeutics, um, which again, part of how uh, structural racism often shows up in healthcare is differential access to therapies. And we saw that with COVID-19, we see that now. So with intention, we're making sure that we can get therapies to everyone, testing to everyone, talking about PPE, making sure people are protected in their workplaces. So there are many, many, you know, sort of moving trains as it were, but making sure we're centering on equity, having conversations like today, listening, learning, and partnering with faith, community-based organizations and others um, so that we can all together get to the other side of the pandemic. Dr. Williams, I wanna step back from the flaws of our healthcare system for a moment. Obviously all the barriers that we mentioned, all the, the barriers to access, uh, but your life's work has made the argument that racism itself is the root of many health issues. You even created a scale that measures its impact. Um, I'd love for you to explain this scale and how it works. All right, thank you. This is a great question because we know that what the data tells us is that African-Americans and Latinos and Native Americans and uh, Native um, Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders are all more than twice as likely to have died uh, from COVID-19 uh, than the white population. So, so the elevated rates, and, and as uh, Dr. Nunes made a point that this is what we see with COVID-19, we see for so many other causes of death. So the big question is why? And there are many reasons. Um, part of it is linked to where they live. Um, there's a study that showed area of high air pollution and you're exposed to COVID-19, you're more likely to get it. So that's, that's a, a risk factor we sometimes don't even think about. But the jobs that they hold that put them at higher risk, the lower income and, and, and disadvantaged neighborhoods they live in put them at higher risk. And what my research, I'm going to talk about everyday discrimination scale, but before I get to that, my research and the research of others have shown that African-Americans and uh, other populations of color compared to whites have higher levels of economic stress unemployment, difficulty making ends meet at the end of the month, have higher levels of psychosocial stressors like the loss of a loved one, um, have higher levels of exposure to physical chemical stressors. All of those stressors matter in terms of creating vulnerability and high uh, likelihood of being uh, coming down with major chronic illnesses. And on top of that, we have the stress of discrimination. And so the everyday discrimination scale is one of the scales that I developed. It doesn't capture all aspects of, of discrimination, but it captures a, a major component. And what it captures is little day-to-day -day indignities, being treated with less courtesy and respect than others, receiving poorer service than others at restaurants or stores, people acting as if they think you are not smart or if they're afraid of you. You know, it's, it's just a lot of little things. And what the research shows is that those little indignities chip away at our dignity and chip away at our well-being. And those psychological effects it produces translates into physiological effects in our body. So just to give you an example, there are studies now that show that individuals who score high on everyday discrimination have higher risk of incident diabetes. That's new cases of diabetes, of new cases of hypertension, of new cases of heart disease. There's even one study shows incident breast cancer is linked to high levels of exposure to discrimination. So the discrimination on top of all the other stressors that our populations face 
leads to what researchers are calling accelerated aging, or some are calling it premature aging. And think of it this way. If you live in a bad environment, your age is not only capturing how long you have lived, your age is also capturing how long you've been exposed to bad environmental condition and how physiologically compromised you have become as a result of such exposure. And what does the CDC tell us? That at every age, African-Americans have earlier onset of all of the major chronic diseases, of diabetes, of heart disease, of hypertension. And what are those factors? Those are risk factors for COVID-19 and having a severe case of COVID-19. There was a study in New York City of, of almost 8,000 patients at, at different hospitals in New York City and found that only 6% of the patients hospitalized had none of the underlying risk factors like obesity or hypertension or diabetes or heart disease, and only 6% of them had one. And what I'm saying is the, the conditions of life, the living and working conditions that exposes us to multiple types of stressors, including the stress of discrimination, is really leaving populations of African-Americans and other populations of color as sitting ducks, essentially, for when a pandemic like COVID-19 comes in and makes us much more vulnerable to the disease in the first place. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Dr. Christian Hoppe's day job is combating infectious diseases. He's a molecular biologist based in Nigeria who's also on a mission to embolden young African scientists to take the narrative of Africa into their own hands. For far too long, he says, the West has failed to credit Africans for innovation and scientific breakthroughs. It's the result of a legacy of colonialism and anti-black racism, he says. The average African believes that he cannot do anything meaningful. The average African person may believe that anything that coming from the West or coming or anything that a white person would tell him or anybody of I mean any other person is better than what he thinks. So you first of all need to change that mindset. Hear more from Hoppy in the podcast Solvers. It's a new show about social innovation around the globe, created by the Skoll Foundation in partnership with Aspen Ideas. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Just search Solvers. Let's return to today's show. Here's Trumaine Lee. Harriet, so we just heard Dr. Williams lay out basically it's not just where you live, it's how you live. And that exposure to not just environmental toxins from being kind of pressed together in these highly densely populated communities, uh, but also exposure to, to racism and discrimination from big slights to small slights. And I want to ask you, I know you have some ideas um, for policies and practices that can make an impact on a healthcare system. So with everything that, that Dr. Williams just laid out, you know, what do you think it will take to make healthcare more accessible and equitable for all Americans? I think one of the things that tends to be missing from the proposed toolbox, when someone makes brilliant analyses like Dr. Williams, pointing out indisputably the role of racism, exacerbating risk. We hear a lot about the need for increased training, the need for increased education, and that's true. But the thing that I think we need and no one tends to discuss as often, or at least not as often, is accountability. In other professions, when people fail to make the mark, there are consequences for that. If an institution is consistently failing to serve its black patients and patients of color, as well as it serves its white patients, if they're not getting the appropriate technology as frequently as they should, if their pain is not being addressed, but they're being sent away and labeled drug seeking, all these things should have consequences. Institutions who are not able to demonstrate equity in these areas should be penalized. That maybe they shouldn't be eligible for government grants. Maybe they should be uh, forced to undergo oversight by institutions that do better. And same for individuals problematic individuals. You know, I'm putting in mind of that because I, a hand-washing study I read a few years ago showing that uh, nurses were reminding surgeons to do hand-washing per hospital policy, and it was not working, not surprisingly. But in one hospital, they decided to start docking surgeons' pay if they were not meeting the hand-washing criteria, and they saw the improvements they wanted to see very quickly. I think we need to entertain things like this, to have, um, to generate written policies you know, dictating things like what kind of 
treatment people in pain should receive when they come in. And if you can't document that you are treating everybody the same and offering everybody that, then there should be real consequences. Maybe you shouldn't have to finish your residency program. You know, maybe um, you should get a low mark or not be able to advance professionally, whatever seems to work. I think we need to start entertaining that. That will send the dual message that this is important. And it also it's part of your mission as a healer. Part of your mission to treat everybody well, to give everybody quality care. It's not something nice that you want to do that you should be, you know, treated as a benefactor for. It's something that you have signed on to do and should do and need to be held to standards. And I also think there are certain laws that should be changed. I dictated my many books, but I pointed out that um, IRBs, those boards that um, evaluate proposals to do medical research, instead of having only one non-affiliated person on the board, I think they should be made of equal members, um, scientists and doctors, and people from the local community who represent the subject pool, people who will actually be in these experiments. I think that that's really essential to give people uh, who will be research subjects a real voice and some real leverage in determining not only what is done, but how things are done. So this is a few of my ideas. And can I make one aside, Tremaine? Of course. Um, as I was listening to the, the talk about uh, coronavirus, something I think is really important, the strict scrutiny on African-American behavior is something we have inherited from those 19th century scientists that I'm always maligning. You know, um, this, I ask myself, vaccine skepticism is rife in this country. Most vaccine skeptics are white. Why are we only hearing about the black ones? Uh, last summer during the clinical trials, the message was consistent. African-Americans are not signing up for clinical trials. African-Americans are afraid of Tuskegee, so they won't sign up. But when the data came out, the data did not show that. Both BioNTech and Moderna data showed that African-Americans were 10% of the subject pool. African-Americans are only 12.3% of the population. They were signing up. They were engaging very well. I think it was an exemplary record. So why, were, why was this mythology being promulgated in newspaper pages and medical journals? And now our, the prominent message we've been hearing is that African-American vaccine skeptics are rejecting the vaccine. Again, America is full of vaccine skeptics, but the strict focus on African-Americans I find problematic. It's sort of a blame the victim discourse. And I also wonder why, why aren't the news media and medical media looking at barriers to access rather than focusing on African-American behavior? If you read the journals and newspapers, you think that African-Americans had free and equal access to the vaccine. We're just choosing not to adopt it. And we know that's not the truth. We know that even things like prioritizing the elderly work against African-Americans who have our younger populations, like Hispanics and Native Americans, how many of us live to be 85 years old and were able to get into that first group prioritized? Relatively few. So I think that you know we need to, again, abandon this blame the victim discourse and pay more attention to hurdles, hurdles that we can actually do something to topple. I love the solutions, by the way, Harriet, you, you, you laid out. I, I have said sometimes in my talks that if we made have hospitals reported their inequities and a joint commission in accrediting hospitals would right. look at the degree of inequities that exist, that would change the game overnight because that the ability of a hospital would, to function to be accredited right. would be linked to how well it's doing on addressing inequities. That, that would be real accountability. But the other point I want to make that, that's really important as well is there was a randomized controlled trial done in, in Oakland, California, uh, took African-American males and randomized, give them a coupon to go to a hospital uh, for a special screening and randomized them to be seen by a black doctor or by a doctor who was not black. And what it showed is that those African-American men who were seen by a black doctor were much more engaged. They were more likely to take all of the, the services that were provided, plus ask about other conditions and challenges they had in their life. There is a study out of Florida that, that looked over multiple years at every birth, every hospital birth, yeah. and documented that a newborn black baby treated by a white doctor is three times more likely to die than a white newborn in the same hospital. I read that, that one. That gap is cut in half if they are treated by a black doctor. 
Now, we still don't fully understand all the mechanisms and processes, but that is, that is a stunning finding um, of thousands of births over, uh, over a decade in the state of Florida. And where, where do we stand now in America? In 2014, there were fewer African-American males in the first year of medical school than in 1978. Okay, so we, we have a challenge. In the mid-1960s, 2.9% of all practicing physicians in the United States uh, were black. In 2019, 5% of all practicing physicians are black, 6% are Latino. We have made a lot less progress. You think of affirmative action in medicine, it has had remarkable results for women, increasing the number of women in medicine. It has, and most of those women have been white. So white families, this is a point that people missed all the time. What's true in medicine is true in other sectors of society. Affirmative action programs work well, and the biggest beneficiaries of them have been white females who have gone home to white households Although white Americans are the racial group with the greatest opposition to affirmative action, whereas they are the greatest racial group with the, who were the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action. Because when they see affirmative action, they think only of populations of color. The affirmative action also opened the doors for women in the United States. Dr. Nunez Smith, I want to ask you this. There are a lot of people who are cynical and say, you know, you can't policy your way out of this. And I wonder if these kinds of conversations with all the nuance and all the data are happening in the White House or happening in that strata, right? Or are politics getting in the way? Can we find a way for policymakers to kind of latch on to some of these ideas and actually effectuate them? Well, I think it's necessary. I think we have to, right? This is how we meet this moment. If we, if we have this commitment to disrupting the patterns that we've been talking about, for this conversation, then we have to. We have to look at those policies, practices, the processes. We have to look at where those levers are. And then also talking about uh, the Joint Commission, right? Where are the various levers to think about? How might we incentivize what we want to see? You know, I, I, I've always said, and, and I, I come back often to the data, right? People will know because we have made choices in the, in the data that we choose to collect, in what we collect and how we collect it, those choices along the way, again, I think reflect where our values are and what they work to do often is to keep invisible a lot of these inequities, to keep particular groups and populations unseen and their experiences unseen. You know, when we start looking at the COVID history, how long did it take us to get data on particular groups, right? How long did it take us to be able to understand what's happening for instance, in, in prisons and jails, there are, there are choices that we make that continue to reify these norms. And so we have to begin by making those, those commitments. We have to. So, you know, we need a conversation as well around changing hearts and minds, most certainly. But I think we, we do not escape the imperative to think about policies and practices along the way um, and making sure that those are aligned with the values that the majority of people in the country are, are, are currently stating and endorsing. Before we go uh, to questions, I do want to ask um, Harriet, I want to talk to you about uh, your new book, which came out in February, which focuses on the erosion of informed consent. Now, that's not a new issue, uh, but you said COVID-19 has made it ever more apparent. And what you found is really chilling. I want you to break it down for us specifically about the erosion of informed consent, what it's led to, and how does it overlap with the inequity we've seen in handling in the handling of uh, COVID-19 over the last year? Well, there have been some dramatic changes. In 1996, unbeknownst to most people, two changes to the Code of Federal Regulation for the first time made it legal to um, force people into medical research without getting their permission. There were two different uh, changes to the law. The floodgates then opened. I, when I stopped counting, I found more than 30 research initiatives and at least 23,000 people who've already been enrolled in research that they had no idea that they were in, that they did not have a chance to say yes or no to. So we've had this loosening, this mass loosening with no transparency. When the uh, coronavirus hit these shores, um, urgency is, is created by emergencies like infectious disease pandemics uh, and outbreaks, and also by military urgency. Anything that creates an urgency creates the temptation to lower the bar when it comes to eliciting informed consent. Informed consent is lengthy and difficult and expensive when you consider the fact that a 
company only has a few years to conduct its research. And getting people to, uh, educating them and getting their permission takes time. So in an emergency situation like, an, like a pandemic, where you not only have a stress of many patients have to be cared for with inadequate personnel, but you also have caregivers who are human beings. They're highly trained scientists, but they're also human beings. And the fear of, a, of an unknown disease exacerbates this. And that's how it was that we had um, organizations, hospitals, um, ambulance departments, um, even counties and cities contemplating or enacting procedures that would dispense with informed consent. So instead of um, getting permission from families and people to um, do a DNR, do not resuscitate order, instead, some institutions were saying, we're gonna issue deep blanket DNRs to everybody who has coronavirus. Now, very often they would contemplate this but a few times the government would write them letters saying, you can't do this, it violates the law. But in other times, they got no such letter. In other times, you had endless attendants in Newark, Los Angeles, and who knows where else, deciding that we are not gonna do CPR on people who we think might have coronavirus. We're putting our, our attendants at risk and there are just too many people to deal with. So it becomes a slippery slope, very easy to do. The urgency exasperates people's uh, desire to, um, or temptation to dispense with it. And next thing you know, you've got people making claims, for example, that while they were in the hospital, one woman said that her husband, Michael Hickson, was in the ICU with coronavirus, was recovering and about to be discharged, not to home, but to hospice care. And she asked why, she says, why is my husband going to hospice? when he's recovering. They said, because we don't think he has much of a quality of life. The doctor's plan was to withhold medication, food and water. And she said, because he's in a wheelchair, he's got no quality of life. She says her doctor said, that's correct. And she said she plans to sue the hospital because six days later, her husband died. Hmm. And in her opinion, her husband died because medication and food and water withheld from him. And it's something right out of the eugenic playbook from the 1920s when People don't have long memories about this, but it was not at all unusual for doctors to take vulnerable populations like infants and openly refuse to care for them. Oh, this infant has got some kind of um, congenital problem. He'd be better off if we don't even let him live. So they withhold food and water. You know, we're right back there, this neo-eugenic um, doorstep, and we're being brought there by this you know, increasing indifference toward informed consent. Ethicists will talk about it and philosophize about it as an abstraction, but the reality is informed consent is an essential layer of protection for subjects, and it's often not viewed that way. So uh, again, the pandemic is exacerbating this, and I shudder. Every time I look into it, I find some new abuse or alleged abuse, and it's just not a pretty picture. We are going to have to deal with this at some point as a, as a larger issue and not wait for the next outbreak or pandemic. My goodness, carte blanche, the erosion of informed consent. I'm going to get it myself. Um, I encourage all of you to, to read into more. Uh, so let's go to questions. We've got a bunch of questions from our viewers. Uh, the first is, Dr. Smith, how do you propose a medical school curriculum to be revised to address structural racism? No, absolutely. And we have to. That is a must. And I think it's great to see that that's happening across the country. It's certainly happening at our medical school. Where we're thinking about this, you know, and that's 100 percent. Correct, right? But where we want to begin is how exactly are we explicitly and implicitly teaching our students and our trainees about race? And too often, race is presented as a biological construct, right? As a biological imperative and more importantly, a biological determinant. So this very, very uh, sort of the, the medicalizing of race all the time, we do not discuss it as a social construct, which is what it is. And we see it baked in to so much of how we practice. And I think that is the first disruption, right? When we begin to say things like we're, 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 uh, we have race um, uh, adjusters, right? In our various calculators, when we have algorithms for determining uh, tr either treatment or diagnosis and race is part of that. And so that is, I, I think where the work starts, uh, it certainly doesn't finish, but that's so important in how we practice medicine right now. It is baked in. Uh, you know, I often, when I'm talking to my, um, 
to my trainees and they're presenting patients, it's also just part, it's, it's normed in the way that we talk about patients. We introduce a patient by saying, this is a 42 year old African-American female. And sort of why, why do we put that information there? And so often what trainees tell you is because it makes them think of a particular list of diagnoses, right? And so again, this race as biology and trying to get that thinking to say race is important in terms of health, but it is because of the exposure to racism and the social reality and how that drives health. And so we need to have that concept and frame as opposed to this biological one. Um, but you know, this is, this, is, this is ongoing, this is work that has started and I wanna always applaud and give kudos to those students and those residents and trainees who will help us be our better selves in the profession. We're really calling to be trained in a different way. Harry, you talked about a little bit of, of an accountability piece. Do you have any ideas in terms of revising uh, medical school curriculums that might be helpful? I do. I think it's really important, you know, to acknowledge that medical students, both during their their um, scientific training and their clinical years, are going to encounter, you know, people who are teaching them, who are, you know acting as models, they're going to see some of these people engage in the same racial biases that are creating problems. I think it's really important to inoculate them. I think it's a really good idea to introduce medical students before they begin their training to historical facts. The history of medicine has been curated to remove a lot of the information they need to know about the, the root of things like these algorithms that are problematic and uh, the practices of, you know, introducing somebody by indicating their race, which I'm glad to say University of Pennsylvania has decided to abandon. I think all schools should abandon that. But you know, it's, I think it's really important to begin by inoculating them. My book, Medical Apartheid, gives a lot of the history that has been elided from the curriculum. Other books do as well. I'm happy to know that, I'm happy to know it's now being used in a curriculum in a lot of medical schools, but I wanna see them to read this first and it will give them a framework for questioning what they're going to hear later on. These racial constructs are often offered uh, with no criticism and they're often frankly erroneous. I want them to be prepared to question and analyze for themselves when they encounter that. So I think that's really important. But Harriet, as they say, that sounds too much like right, I'd imagine. Um, <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> here is, I can uh, dream though. <laughs> yeah, here, here's actually a, a really good question that I don't think we talk enough about. Uh, this next question is, how can we help address the disparities in access to healthcare technology? Dr. Nuna Smith, let's start with you. Yeah, absolutely. And again, something the pandemic has brought to top of mind, right? When we think about how we all converted over to, to telehealth, right, as one example. And so the digital tools that are out there. And in particular, we see you might automatically say there are some advantages here to going to telehealth and addresses some of the structural barriers. Right, that we know all too often to be true in terms of when patients and how patients can connect. But at the same time, we have evidence that shows, for instance, patients who don't speak English very well or speak English poorly have been left out often of that uh, opportunity right, for digital progress. And it's somewhat in part because of differences in our basic infrastructure. Right, We have to talk about things like broadband, and that's part of the conversation. But also, again, you know, about our ability to meet patients where they are and, and, and provide those needs, right? Provide interpreters and others in those settings. The requirement that you have sort of video as part of those telehealth visits in order for full reimbursement. So a structural incentive almost, you know, in the opposite direction for those patients who already have those smartphones and technologies. But when it comes down to kind of advances in therapies and therapeutics and that type of healthcare technology, so much more work to be done. And if we use that COVID-19 example, we see, and these are patterns, again, you see across in terms of who has access. And often it begins, uh, unfortunately, with the referral of the clinician. And so how do we also make sure that in the way that we do the clinical workflow, that we don't allow uh, access to the latest and greatest in technology to always be gatekept by individual clinicians. And that is gonna be incredibly important for us to continue to work on. Dr. Williams, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think there was a study done here, uh, published from a, uh, one of the great hospitals where I have received care that showed that patients with cardiac pro heart problems coming into the hospital if they are white, they're going to go to the cardiology unit. If they are African-American or Latino, are more likely than the white patients to be referred to the general internal medicine unit. 
So they are in the same hospital, they're getting care, but they are referred not to the place where they would get the optimal care for their condition. And, and those are just ways in which the system functions to disadvantage racial ethnic minorities from getting the, the optimal um, high quality care that they could get. Harriet? I could not agree more. I think that's really important illustration of a basic problem. It reminds me of a phrase that used to really grate on my senses. I used to hear it a lot. I don't hear it anymore, thank goodness. Appropriate technology. The idea, whether voiced or tacit, that for some people, um, technology or technology that will address their problem is not really appropriate because they're on Medicaid, because they can't really afford it, or some other such excuse. It really boils down to reserving technology for patients who are valued, valued for reasons that have um, to do with race or class or otherwise. And the other problem, of course, is with even when one gains access to technology, how frequently racism is, is baked into the technology. It's really interesting because we tend to think of things that are digitized based on mathematical formula as being objective. You can't always conceive of these things as being racist, but they're only as good as the people who designed them. If the people who designed them are being hobbled by their beliefs or mythologies about black people, they are gonna show up in the technology and they frequently do. I think that we need to do perhaps a, some mass inventory to see in which cases, as Dr. Williams described, we are not using technology in an equitable and ethical way. Uh, this is a big one. What is the cost to all of society by racism in healthcare? What's the cost we all pay for having racism such an insidious part of our healthcare? Yeah, no, let this be a rallying cry, right? I mean, we've heard in terms of economic costs, in terms of that lost genius, this is what it is, and this is everyone's problem, right? That's the first important lesson, is racism is everyone's problem in this country. And so we have to bring together all the sectors to fix it. And so it's government, of course, and policies, it's the healthcare institutions as well, but it's also private sector, employers. There's a role for everyone to play in moving us forward in an anti-racist way. And I think that's what's important for us to do and commit to as a country. And so just great appreciation for our conversation today and the discussion today and these questions. Absolutely, absolutely a lot of work for us to do, but we've heard today some of the great pathways forward. Dr. Nunez Smith, Harry Washington, Dr. Williams, this was truly a fascinating conversation uh, and a really important one. Thank you all for uh, having me as your host. Thank you. David R. Williams is a leading voice in the social sciences and has spent decades researching how racism affects the health of people of color. He's a professor of public health at Harvard. Marcella Nunez-Smith is chair of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services' COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force. Harriet Washington is a widely published science writer. Her latest book is Carte Blanc, The Erosion of Medical Consent. Trumaine Lee hosts the NBC News podcast, Into America. Their conversation was held April 27th by Aspen Ideas Health. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Health, and this show is produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.